This morning's Bible reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and I'll be reading from verses 1 to verses 12. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Brother, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, make his light shine in our hearts, to give us light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Thank you, Alan. I hope you've been encouraged this morning by all the various things, and we haven't even gone through everything that our church is involved in in spreading the kingdom of God throughout Australia, Pennant Hills and the world. Um, because we've had this big focus, we're running a little bit later than usual, so I'm hoping you'll be gracious and kind to me as I come to speak. And I'm hoping you stay for lunch, so it won't matter too much, because you're here for lunch anyway. Now let me pray. Father, open your word to us. Give us a sense of your call on our life and a desire to pursue humility, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've heard of Catherine Graham. Anyone heard of Catherine Graham? Okay, has anyone heard of Watergate, the Watergate scandal, or, or the Washington Post? My guess you've heard of those things. Catherine Graham was one of the most powerful woman, women in the world. Her father purchased the Washington Post in 1933 at a bankruptcy auction. So she grew up in a relatively well-to-do family but bought this broke newspaper called the Washington Post. In 1946, he made her husband, Philip, 
the publisher of the Washington Post, basically the boss. Now, Philip struggled with life. He had huge mood swings. He was an alcoholic. And very sadly, in 1963, he took his own life. Catherine faced this tragedy with four children and what to do with the newspaper. And she said, oh, she decided within a few days, and she announced the thing, I am now the publisher. I'm going to secede my husband and take over the Washington Post. Now, at that time, the Washington Post was just one of many newspapers in Washington, one of thousands of newspapers in the United States. Catherine Graham took the Washington Post from a newspaper like that, which used to be in bankruptcy, to being a household name. She did it by taking many, many risks, by supporting her staff, so she fed the whole exposure of the Watergate scandal, plus a number of other huge political scoops in Washington. And so today it's a household name, New York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune. That's about all I can think of. But Washington Post is, one of their, is, is there with them. She was once asked, they made a movie about the Post, called The Post, Meryl Streep played Catherine Graham, in that movie directed by Steven Spielberg, if you've seen it last year or two years ago. She was once asked, what's the most important attribute for a great leader? And straight away her answer was the absence of arrogance. And it would seem from all reports that Catherine Graham lived this as she led this transformation in the Washington Post. When she passed away in 2001, President George Bush said she was a true leader and a true lady, steely yet shy, powerful yet humble. The Post's headline the next day was A Pioneer with Courage, Influence and Humility. At her funeral, the eulogies kept on emphasising that she was truly a humble woman. And this is a woman leading a newspaper in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s, remarkable, in an aggressive world. It doesn't happen, that sort of thing, does it? That the humble succeed like that. Well, actually it does happen all the time. It's to be expected. Management researcher Jim Collins did five years of research on the really big companies in America and he was looking what makes a great company. He wrote a book called Good to Great which has sold four million copies. <clears throat> big name successful companies like Coca-Cola, General Electric, Johnson & Johnson, Walmart, Chrysler with their big name CEOs didn't make the cut. Only 11 companies he researched made the good to great cut based upon the criteria of having a turnaround in which they financially outperformed market trend by at least three times over a 15-year period. So finances was his primary index. Kimberly Clark and Gillette made the cut of those 11 companies. In his book, Good to Great, he said this, We were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who made the headlines, think Leo Coker or Jack Welsh of CEO Chrysler and GE, compared to those, the good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Self-effacing, quiet, 
reserved, even shy. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. People like Catherine Graham, who may not have been working on financial indices but power indices of the newspaper business. Graham uh, Collins produced this leadership pyramid. I'm going to have to put my glasses. No, I haven't left my glasses in my pocket for, to read this one. But you can see the top of the pyramid. You've got various types of leader. You need first highly capable individuals and contributing team members, etc. At the top of the leadership tree, you need an executive, a level five executive, who is marked by. They build enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. That is the great executive according to the 4 million copies sold good to great Jim Collins research. Even today, and I was talking to my brother-in-law last night who's a HR management consultant, been in very high levels of management, he said they talk about, in his industry, they now talk about looking for servant leaders to lead large organisations. That's, that's not a biblical phrase, that's a management phrase. A servant leader. You know, business is all set around missions and objectives and goals. You need that vision. And if you have a leader who has a resolute will and personal humility, a clear vision, they're not concerned about their own glory. They're not concerned about their own fears. They're concerned about the company and what they're achieving and they've got that humility. You're on a winner. Now that shouldn't be any real surprise for us. If you look at the Bible, Moses was a great leader. He had a clear vision for the future, clear objectives as he led the children of Israel. And he had resolute will, helped by God of course. You know what it says in Numbers 12.3? Now Moses was a very humble man more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Not just Moses. Well, the greatest leader of all time is the Lord Jesus. He had great mission clarity. Why he came. He was here to do his Father's will. He, was, he came to die for his people. He came to restore and renew. You know that little poem or phrase or through it, one solitary life, he was born in an obscure village, the son of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village, working in a carpenter's shop for 33 years. He was three years as a wandering preacher. Never left more than, never went to a big city. Never left more than 200 miles from where he was born, etc., etc., etc. Public opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies, etc., etc., etc. Never wrote a book. Never held office. Never got a degree. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sailed, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. You had a clear mission and absolute humility. Level 5 leadership. Key verse that we've been looking at through this series Philippians 2, Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Humility, 
in practice. We do this because we want a nice, happy church family life and we want people to like us, right? Well, actually, in Philippians 2, Paul doesn't say that. He goes on to say, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held onto and grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility like the one who had a mission, mission-minded humility, humble and resolute will to do his Father's will. Paul goes on to say, I want you to be like Christ so that you shine like the stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Paul himself also had a mission. The Lord Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road and he called him and he sent him and he said, you will be my servant and you will be my witness as you go to your own people and you go to the Gentiles, telling them about me and all that has been revealed to you. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, like Jesus, like Moses, turned out to be a level five leader par excellence. He was the greatest missionary the world has ever known. The greatest church planter the world has ever known. He is literally, I think there's a movie about to come out on him, I don't know if it's any good or not, but he was literally, under God, a world changer. He travelled around the Roman Empire and he told people about Jesus and he started churches and lives were changed and then communities were changed and he raised up leaders and this huge movement of people following Jesus spread all over the Roman Empire, even amongst the Gentiles and non-Jews. Remarkable. How did Paul do that? Well, we could say, well, he had the Holy Spirit working through him. That's true. That's absolutely true when you read the book of Acts. But still he was a human being like you and me. What was it that the Holy Spirit was doing, as, or what was Paul doing as the Holy Spirit worked through him? What was his secret to this incredible mission? Well, when we look at the chat book of 2 Corinthians, which Alan read to us from, that was actually written to one of the churches that Paul preached at, uh, one of the cities that Paul went to and preached, and people became believers, and he started a church there. And Paul lived in this city for quite a while, so that people knew him. He's writing to people who have known his ministry, but within Corinth. There had arose these people, they called themselves super apostles. Paul was an apostle, but they were super apostles. They were better than Paul. They were more gifted than Paul. They were more special than Paul. In fact, they were quite proud of their position and really Paul was nothing. And the church was confused. So Paul writes here this letter to encourage them and to defend his ministry. And so as he's writing here, he's outlining his mission method, the Paul who is nobody, who is a lesser apostle. He tells them the secret of his success. In our passage, you can sum it up in one word. It's his humility. You see, Paul tells them here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what I have received from the Lord Jesus, the gospel, this message, it's all a gift. It's been given to me. 
And all I have to do to receive it is be humble and say, Thank you, Lord. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's a precious gift I've been given. I'm not going to mess with this gift of the gospel. Imagine someone gives you a Rolex watch. Now, I think they keep time better than any other watch. I don't know. But Rolexes are pretty special. Imagine taking your gift of the Rolex watch and looking at it and thinking, you know, I think I can do better. And so you get your engraver and you start scratching around your own little pattern on the face bit of paint on the side, then you say, oh look, I look inside and there's, I reckon I can boost that spring there that turns the ticker ticker around and make it a better watch. You don't do that, you doofball. What makes you think you're such a great watchmaker and better than the Rolex people? See, why would Paul take this wonderful, wonderful message of Jesus and mess with it? You'd only do it if you were a proud goofball that thought you were better than the message, better than the gift. I can't improve on it, says Paul. I'm just going to set it forth plainly. That's all I need to do because I'm humble. See, Paul sees that it's not his message. In fact, this is not my ministry. It's not about me. It's not my work. It's not my power doing this. It's all about Jesus. And he is Lord and so Paul is self-effacing and Jesus exalting in verse 5. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God of creation made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. It's all about Jesus and the light of his glory. And I'm just a servant, as we sang, a servant of the gospel. It's a joy to serve humbly with this message, this message from God. And because it's a gift and it's because it's not my might or my power and it's all God's work, that just means I'm a vessel. I'm a vessel full of the richest treasure, overflowing with the richest treasure. What do you take note of, the pot or the treasure? Paul says in verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And it makes a huge difference to life. For we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. I'm overflowing with wealth and I'm pressing on with this good message, this good news, overflowing with joy even through the hardest trial. The proud would not do that when the trials come. Why am I being hurt? Why am I being upset? Why are people picking on me? But those who have the gift and who humble themselves, they press on. Paul's mission is actually modelled on the very pattern of Jesus. His is a humble mission, verse 10. 
we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body for we, are, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us but life is at work in you. Paul's mission is cross-shaped. It's cruciform. He humbly lowers himself as Jesus did, trusting that the living God will lift him up and work through his ministry. In fact, that is the power of his ministry. Being cross-shaped is its power. It's what Jesus calls us to do when we follow him. You've probably heard before, Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for me will save it. This cross-shaped mission which is worked out in a willing engagement with the world. It's worked out through suffering and serving and sacrifice. Ministry shaped by Christ's status-denying, other-regarding love. That's radical. Jeffrey Greenman, a Christian from America, writes this. He says, Christian leaders are people who live the cross. Not just leaders, it's for all of us. But Christian leaders are people who live the cross, humbling themselves, voluntarily divesting themselves of their rights and privileges, trusting not in their own wisdom, insisting not on their own way, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, seeking not their own advantage but the benefit of others, in humility considering others better than ourselves, giving up their lives for the sake of the lost, the vulnerable and the neglected. Jesus, the man on a mission, lived his life in absolute humility and gave his life in absolute humility for others. The secret of Paul's mission effectiveness is that he followed Jesus and humbly embraced a life shaped by the cross for the glory of God in service of others. It's hardcore stuff, isn't it? Would you bother? Would anyone bother? It's very high cost. What would be the motivation for embracing such a ministry? Well, Paul speaks in chapters, verses 4 and 5 of his ministry. He goes to speak of how what we're living in at the moment is just an earthly tent, but God's got a heavenly dwelling, a heavenly house for us to live in. So much better. Paul goes on to speak of the reality of judgment that we'll all one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's big. It's a big deal. It's high stakes. And in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, 5, verse 11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. This ministry matters. In chapter 5, verse 14, he says, For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. There's a new motivation in verse 17 of chapter 5. 
Therefore, as anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. This is new life, new creation. This, is, this stuff really matters. And our role, in verse 18, all this comes from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. To us human vessels, us, us clay pots, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us this message of reconciliation. That you can be right with God, that you can have an eternal house, that you can be safe for the judgment, your sins can be forgiven. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you therefore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see the motivation? The stakes are high and we're ambassadors. We've been given a mission to persuade, to urge, to yearn for people, to see our lives given over to alerting people to the universal reign of God through Christ. And that mission matters. It matters more than Gillette selling shavers really well or the Washington Post doing a good job of reporting news. It matters more than providing health care. It matters more than teaching children to read. It matters more than conducting research into subatomic particles as good as all those things are. And you know, those missions are so good they need level five leaders. And the mission of Jesus being so much more important really needs level five leaders. And the great mission secret, as the Apostle Paul discovered, as Jim Collins accidentally discovered, the great mission secret is humility. We need level five leaders, personal humility with resolute will of people who pursue the mission. I can't help thinking of Jeff and Beth in Central Asia. It is tough. All of their neighbours are Muslim. In a, in a culture that's entrenched in Islam, that's a shame culture, what can they possibly do to get someone to make the huge change from being a part of that culture to being a follower of Jesus? Here's a suggestion. Why doesn't Jeff go and argue with the local imam and point out to him all the faults and all the failures of Islam through the centuries and in their teaching? That'd be good, wouldn't it? Here's another suggestion. How about, Jeff, you build yourself a really big house and right next to it you build a really big church and you decorate that church with all the finest things and then you dole out money and funds to everybody who shows an interest in your new buildings and you promise them success if they will turn to Jesus and leave their culture behind and start to worship in your colourful building. What if Jeff goes to the centre of town and sets up a preaching platform and starts to tell everybody, you do not need that law, you do not need a hijab. Pork is very good to eat and other things like that. Do you reckon that would be effective? Or, or what if Jeff follows the way of Jesus, that countercultural way, and starts serving the people there in Central Asia with love 
and joy? What if he holds out hope as he does that? What if he listens to people? What if he cares for the outcast? And Beth makes friends with the outcasts and listens to them and loves them. And What if Jeff and Beth, even though they're foreigners, are safe to be around in an unsafe society? What if they have a joy that nobody else has, even through the tough times? And that is what they are doing by the grace of God. And it is tough. They constantly meet resistance and opposition and corruption and injustice and threat. But they remain light in the darkness, in humble ministry. And some have seen the light, the way of Jesus. And they've been attracted to the good word and the good book and the good saviour. Let me make it more local. Here's a book that I read recently by uh, Pat Williams. He started the Orlando Magic. He used to be manager of the 76ers back in the 80s, the Philadelphia 76ers. Big basketball man in the United States. He wrote this book on humility, The Secret of Success. In the last chapter of this book, he has the how-to section, nice and practical. How to be humble. So here you go, six points. You can read them there, hopefully. They're not bad, they're not necessarily from the Bible, but they're pretty good pointers, I think. I think he's done well. Let's think about Natasha. She's an ambassador for Jesus Christ, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God at the University of New South Wales. She's trying to persuade others. She's holding forth the worth of life, life we pray. She's giving an answer to the hope that she has, alerting people to the universal reign of God in Christ Jesus. She is on mission and we have just commissioned her to go and do that work. How would she do if she followed this advice? Tash, what if you made a decision to stop defending yourself and justifying yourself and stop defending campus Bible study when people berate and attack and you just listened and loved? What if you made a point of sharing credit and praise with others, that it wasn't about your turf and your ministry and your glory. But the whole team did this. What if when you meet that girl from Indonesia who's telling you you're wrong, you think about where she's come from and how she's grown up and what it's like for her to be in Australia now in a secular university wearing her hijab feeling out of place, wondering why you seem to have a hope she doesn't have. What if when you meet the socialists and the people who would attack Christianity and the people with purple hair, you stop being judgmental or, or about the male from Indonesia who comes and tells you all the glories of Islam and how Christianity is so wrong. What if you stop thinking that you were superior to that person or somehow better than that person but you're just like them? What if you spent a lot of time serving other people and just giving yourself over to them in love? What if you were quick always to apologise? Do you reckon that would enhance Natasha's ministry at the University of New South Wales? Do you think that would make it more powerful? It's kind of self-evident, isn't it? And what about us in our mission landscape? Because really it's about us. We're all on, we're all on mission. We've all got a landscape of opportunities to declare the universal reign of 
God in Christ? What if we did this with our family? Because, you know, many of us have mission in our family. What if we just stop being judgmental, stop defending ourselves and justifying ourselves? If we shared a bit of praise and started serving and apologising sincerely. Do you reckon your ministry to those who you know and love might be more effective? Level 5 leadership, even for you. Well, we've come to the end of our series on humility. Why should you be humble? Because God is God. Because he made you. It's just natural. Because grace demands it. You've been given so much. You just, all you can do is receive and be blown away. How can you not be humble? Because Jesus has set the example and shown you how to be humble. It's natural. Because frankly, your pride is ugly and your humility is beautiful. Because it's good to praise and worship and that just, you can't praise God without humility. Because I want you to be happy and God wants you to be happy and humility will bring you your greatest happiness. Why be humble? Because mission matters and there will be no mission without humility. It's high stakes stuff walking humbly with our God. Trusting that we will humble ourselves and he will lift us up It's high-stakes stuff because of our friends and family. It's high-stakes stuff because God is glorious. It's high-stakes stuff because Jesus is Lord. And as we enter the Easter season, as we enter the... Some people have been in the Easter season for weeks. We're Baptists. We're just thinking about it now. People often go through Lent practices, practices of active humiliation to prepare for Easter, to recognise that God is God that grace is a gift. You see, the whole of the Christian life and faith and practice is built on humility. The premise of humility. There is no place for pride or arrogance before the cross of Christ. There's no place for pride or arrogance before an empty tomb. There is no place for pride or arrogance before the risen Lord Jesus. No place. So let's commit to walk humbly with our God and to know that he is great. Amen.